Hi, this is Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull, and you're listening to Jazz Is Not What You Think. episode of Jazz Is Not What You Think. My guest this time around is Jethro Tull's intriguing leader, Mr. Ian Anderson. I was into progressive rock and Jethro Tull long before I knew a thing about jazz. When I was exploring new music as a teen, Tull, as fans often refer to them, entered the scene and opened my ears to a new kind of fusion that was unconventional rock mixed with folk, blues, and classical music and with visual references through Ian Anderson's lyrics. And unlike the prog rockers of the time, there was humor mixed with the band's acoustic and electronic instrumentation and improvisation. What I could never have imagined back then was that Tull would remain, even today, unsurpassed as the most commercially successful, eccentric progressive rock bands of all time. When I spoke with the famed pop flautist who's known for his pelican stance, akin to his colorful lyrics and pronunciations, Ian had a lot to say about progressive rock, that whole era, including Yes, Genesis, Emerson, Lincoln, Palmer, and even Frank Zappa, to things like spirituality and his financial support of Scottish cathedrals. He also talks about seminal moments of Tull, like when Jimmy Page walked in the studio during one of Martin Barr's solos, and how he was still learning to play the flute during the making of Tull's earliest albums. Ian also had some interesting comments about improvisation and jazz, and how jazz was his first real introduction to music. And of course, I'll take this time to say that you can get the best introduction to jazz by becoming a subscriber to Jazz Is. Just log on to jazziz.com. Also, be sure to like us, subscribe to, and share our podcast with friends, or write a review so that we can keep these podcasts coming your way. For now, enjoy a conversation with the very gifted progressive rock legend, Ian Anderson. Fantastic. Well, it's great to have you here, and, and I wanted to start by telling you that I took the Jethro Tull quiz. Um, I got a four out of ten. Um, I'm not sure what that means. I actually, I, I've been a fan for years i was uh i bought this was and stand up and benefit when those albums came out and uh so i I think that uh, i I forgot a lot and i think a lot of it is i am too old to rock and roll and when that happened i went into jazz but you on the other hand you continue to do uh what really very few have done and that is you've continued on a what I used to consider progressive rock. Did you ever consider yourself or not consider yourself part of that kind of progressive rock scene? In the broadest sense, absolutely, yes. I think Jethro Tull was one of the very first bands to be described in the music press in the UK back in around 1969 as progressive rock. It was the first time it ever got used and um, it it was a very all-embracing catch-all category really describing anybody who was working with um, more eclectic influences, i.e. not simply American rock and roll and um, 
um, the the traditions of pop and rock music. So anybody, whether it was Pink Floyd or the Nice or Led Zeppelin or anybody could have been considered progressive rock in the sense that they were drawing upon other sources, such as Zeppelin used certain elements of uh, British folk music and Jimmy Page's awareness of traditional English folk alongside blues, you know, that, that would have put them in that category. But of course, a couple of years later, progressive rock had narrowed its definition to really embrace perhaps the idea that it was about clever, complicated musicianship and bands like Yes and Genesis and and um, uh, Gentle Giant and other bands who were thought of as being very clever, sure. but not necessarily toe-tapping music. They, 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 become, they, they became the, I suppose, the definition of what was then shortened to prog rock. Mm-hmm. Which wasn't something that I was very comfortable with, but um, nonetheless, you know, progressive rock's a good good description. Just as progressive pop would be the perfect way of describing Sgt. Pepper, mm-hmm. or the Pink Floyd's "Piper at the Gates of Dawn," you know, their first album. You, you could say that was that in 1967. It was progressive pop music. Mm-hmm. A couple of years later, with more of a more of a a rhythmic intensity, and more musical discipline, it became progressive rock. But yeah, sure, I'm very happy to be considered then and now as as a progressive rock artist in that broad definition. But you said you you know you came to jazz after you know listening to pop and rock music, and with me it was actually the other way around because my first musical experience was listening to jazz. My father listened. Um, occasionally to his small collection of wartime big band jazz and that was the first music I heard was uh, Benny Goodman and Count Basie and it was it was that big band swing music of the World War II era and from that I suppose that awareness of that kind of jazz took me on as a teenager into into um, listening to Charlie Barker and Ornette Coleman and the the plethora of 50s and 60s American jazz musicians that um, gave me a, a greater depth of musical understanding beyond simply the blues, which was, as a teenager, what I listened to most often. But, you know, jazz was very much part of, not part of my repertoire, because I couldn't play it. It was way too complicated for me. But it was what inspired me as a listener to uh, get into music in my late teens and... and um, and by the time I was in my early 20s, I realized that not only could I not play it, but I didn't want to try to play it because I would not be, you know, I just wouldn't be, be able to hold my my head up with contemporary jazz musicians of that, that era who were so far ahead of my musical skills, I didn't bother to try. I mean, apart from having done a, a sort of a cover of a, a Roland Kirk song called Serenade to a Cuckoo, that was probably mm-hmm. the only thing that uh, was somebody else's piece of quirky jazz inspired music um, but uh, other than that no I, I, I left I left that behind me when I was uh, in my late teens I realized that this was too difficult for me to comp the chords and the chord changes were way too complex and later on when I found myself playing alongside people like Anthony Jackson and um, I, I realized that that kind of music played by that standard of artists was something that you know, unless you've unless you've been to uh, 
um, you know, a, a music college and really studied this stuff. It's not something you can just pick up um, and kind of fool people with. You've really got to be a studied and serious musician to to enter into that world, both in the historical sense of jazz, but also in the contemporary sense of whatever people are doing these days, um, whatever that might be. Yeah, the um, some people who may not know your history, but stumbled across a, an Ian Anderson or a Jethro Tull a song or album, uh, they sometimes attribute, obviously falsely in this case, the flute as an instrument that's most known in, in j the jazz and classical worlds. Um, but you have managed to take the, that instrument, which my understanding was is that you that wasn't your first instrument, and you kind of learned to play that as you formed a band. How, how did that all work? Well, like most of my peers, as a schoolboy, I aspired to be a guitar player. And um, by the time I was 16, 17 years old, I was playing simple improvised blues-based music on the guitar. And, uh, you know, a few little jazzy chords thrown in here and there, but mostly it was pretty simple stuff. Um, but, you know, I, I, I realized that I wasn't an inspired guitar player when I first heard Eric Clapton when he was with John Mayles Blues Breakers. Uh, not, not in person, but on record, then I, that, that for me was the point where I decided I was not going to try and make a name as an electric guitar player. And by then I'd also, I mean, apart from Eric Clapton, I'd also heard rumours of people like Jimmy Page and Richie Blackmore and uh, Jeff Beck, um, people who were down in London and were the, they were the gunslingers at the time, you know, they, they were the guys who were the hot shots around town, the, the people that everyone was was mentioning as being the, the you know, the new sort of instrumental hero. Uh, there were too many of them, really, mm -hmm. to compete with that. And so I traded in my Fender Stratocaster for, uh, it was a very second-hand Fender Stratocaster, but it was a 60s sure. model that probably be worth about $25,000, dollars today. Mm -hmm. um, I traded it in for a for a fifty dollar flute and a Shure Unidyne three microphone, <laughs> uh, a precursor of the SM fifty seven, and um, and with a flute and a, a and a microphone, I thought, wow, well, you know, the world is my oyster, and there aren't too many flute players out there doing uh, doing um, blues and rock, so uh, it seemed like a, a potentially fertile ground, and uh, indeed it. It turned out to be just that in February of 1968 when I started playing the flute at the Marquee Club and people took a little notice, even though I could only play a few notes, but uh, <laughs> it, 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 you know, it made its impact and, and established the early Jethro Tull as not just being another blues band with a guitar player, singer kind of front band. It was, it was a little different and that was the flute quickly found its way into most of the material. Um, yeah since that was the point of difference we had. And, and I also, Ian, I thought the, um, one of the other differences uh, that really, in my mind as a listener, separated you from the other progressive rock bands of the time is you're a storyteller. And, and that, to me, uh, I love that more than anything else. I mean, the music was, was wonderful, but I always felt like you were telling me a story. 
Well, it's not usually a story in the sense of it being a narrative, you know, that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's more of a, I'm, you know, I'm more, of, I'm somewhere between being a portrait painter and a landscape painter. I, mm-hmm. I tend to record things very often from the point of view of a visual reference because, of course, I started off studying painting, art, and photography, not music. And mm-hmm. so, like many of our British musicians of that era, you know, we, we all learnt our trade, not at music college, but at art school. Sure. Uh, I mean, the, the list is endless of, of a British uh, rock and pop musicians who, who were art students. And so we, uh, you know, I think we all had that in common, that we, we liked visual references and that easily translated itself into the stuff of song lyrics and, and in a way the melodic lines that you that you derive, all the words are the same in painterly arts and music. We talk about line and form and tone and color, harmony. These are words that are interchangeable in the two very different media. I mean, one is all ears, the other is all eyes. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a performing musician, you get to put them both together because you are a performing musician on a stage. It is a visual thing as well as a an oral experience for the audience. And I think that's what drew many of us art students into the world of, of live music performance. We got, to, we got to combine two elements that were um, a joy to, to bring together. Yeah, the, um, the other thing that I noticed, because I, I, back in the day, I, I actually used to attend Jethro Tull concerts. And, um, and, but I was a huge fan of Yes and Genesis and PFM and, and Gentle Giant and all the uh, bands that you mentioned, but there was a there was an element of humor. There was even in the way that you conducted yourself on stage, the the uh, your eyes, your voicings that that wasn't in other progressive rock, and uh, that seemed to be somewhat. Maybe it's your visual side, a theatrical type of approach to. Uh, a live performance that obviously you wouldn't necessarily catch on record, but it certainly made the live performances that much more interesting. Well, I think humor is a very part, very much a part of life and our relationships. And um, when it's used uh, in music, whether in live performance or in song lyrics, it's, it becomes invitational. It draws people in in a way that perhaps um, a more serious or studied approach may not do. And I mean, you can't ever suggest that yes had a, a you know much in the way of humor about them mm-hmm. they, they were sort of mm-hmm. rather devoid of it sure. i mean with with genesis there was a certain kind of over the topness about um, about peter gabriel's on stage personae but they were we weren't sure whether to laugh at him with him or just not <laughs> laugh at all it was a, it was a bit you know a bit hard to, to work that one out but, but generally speaking those those proggy bands of the early 70s. I mean, they seemed to have no sense of humor whatsoever. And, and those that did um, covered it up rather well. Emerson, Lake and Palmer, for example, I mean, did have a sense of humor. They could the self-parody, the, the silliness of it all. Sure. I mean, they, they got it. They understood it. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't something they were going to really admit to either the, their, their, their fans or to the media. But you know, having known the guys, of course they, they saw the silly side, the ridiculous um, um, degree to which you know self-parody and the pomp and the and the the silly theatricality had become part of of what they did. Sure. They just they just didn't really want to own up to it. Whereas 
for me, I, I always felt that humour is an important thing. And you know, you, if you're not prepared to laugh at yourself and have a bit of fun, then I think um, the audience will soon discover that you're a bit uh, one-dimensional and rather a dull person, musically speaking. So yeah, humour has always got to be somewhere there and it, it, it is. It's not that I like Frank Zappa who couldn't ditch the humor. He was afraid to tell us who Frank really was. <laughs> uh, he just couldn't couldn't write a piece. Uh, he did instrumental music that was serious but as soon as he uh, penned anything with lyrics and vocals it all had to be cynical, sometimes quite hurtful mm -hmm. parody of stereotypes and um, humor in a, a rather lavatorial schoolboyish way which you know, frankly, whilst it was uh, endearing in, in much of his work, it, it did become, it seemed to me like it was an excuse. You know, he just, he lacked something mm -hmm. as, a, as a writer that would have, you know, he never wore his heart on his sleeve. And once in a while, you know, you, you wanted him to do that, especially when, you know, in his latter years when he was dying of prostate cancer. Then I, I always kind of thought maybe he's going to come out with a, with an album of love songs in his final <laughs> few months on planet Earth, but he didn't. Mm -hmm. it was, um, he didn't uh, ever do that. And so, I mean, in a, in a way, I think you know, you have the the extremes of Zappa who couldn't who couldn't leave um, cynical humour out of it, and other bands like Yes who had no idea how to include it. Mm -hmm. um, I think Jethro Tull was a band that did manage to do here and there. Both of those, not not just me as well. I mean, because the other guys did it too. You know, they, they had a lot of fun on stage. The guys who were in the band in the seventies. It was a very, um, a very spirited, almost Monty Python esque joy in dressing up and being a little over the top. You know, we we all had fun with it. Was it so, John's idea to put the urinal on stage, or was that yours? I think it might have been my idea because I, I did actually own a urinal from when I was working as a lavatory cleaner in a cinema in Luton, just north of London. And so a urinal had been part of my life, having liberated a, a broken one from the, uh, from the storeroom of the, of the cinema. And they said, oh, sure, you can take that away. It's got a crack in it. So I had an idea of making it into a drinking fountain. But uh, somewhere along the line, it had become uh, a, 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 a possible feature to, to put on the side of the hammered organ, but of course it was so big and heavy, we had to find a sort of plastic imitation urinal to, uh, to a, that, that could travel, that could be uh, on the side of the organ. <laughs> the, real, the real deal would have got broken in the first week on the road. Yeah. Well, the, the, back in those days, I mean, you were on the cover of Time magazine. It was, you know, what I remember as a fan, it was the post-Beatles era. And, you know, Jethro Tull was considered, you know, the, the art rock, the progressive rock, the, the humor, everything that, that we talked about. And then you come out with an album that really threw everyone through a loop as, as fans, thick as a brick. And, and the album really resonated with me and so many fans uh, because it was a concept album and there was a visual. And the one thing I wanted to ask you was, today, if Thick as a Brick was released, because it didn't have the 12-inch album cover of the newspaper and that visual, do you think it would have had the same impact? Well, as a digital download, no, it wouldn't, because, of course, it depended so much on a, on a, on a conceptual presentation it was it was the 16-page newspaper packaging the vinyl album the large tangible objet which you could own 
or aspire to own if you had to save up for it. And, mm -hmm. and of course, musically speaking, it was it was complex, it was long, it was rambling, but you know, much of it was kind of toe tapping music if you mm -hmm. relaxed with it, and quite a lot of acoustic guitar passages. I mean, it's a much more much more acoustic album than people sometimes uh, imagine. You know, a lot of it was written. Well, in fact, all of it was written on acoustic guitar. Some of it remained with the acoustic guitar very much at the uh, the center of the the, uh, the recording arrangements. And I should think probably a third of the album just resulted from me sitting alone in the studio recording acoustic guitar parts, singing, and then the other guys would come and do some judicious overdubs here and there. Um, some of it, of course, was all played live in the studio as backing tracks by all the band, but mm -hmm. quite a chunk of it, I'd say about a third of it was just recorded me alone, putting down the, uh, the, 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 the blood and guts of it, and then a few judicious bits and pieces put on afterwards. So it, it combined some of the acoustic notions of the Aqualung album with some of the rock music moments of the Aqualung album, but it just took it into that sort of more progressive prog rock kind of world where the concept album, the prog rock genre as it had emerged by then um, seemed ripe for kind of plundering and satirizing in a way. So the album is kind of half serious, half poking a little fun at mm -hmm. the prog rock era of the time, but, but through the eyes of a, you know, a, a 11, 10, 11 year old schoolboy who's, um, you know, kind of getting to grips with that prepubescent idea of who and what the adult world is about. And, and you know, many of us grow up with a lot of misconceptions. We get them from our parents, we get them from society, we get them from school, religion, children's comics, television, whatever it might be that, that you, you build an idea which turns out not very often to be an accurate representation of what the real world beyond is like. And, mm -hmm. and so I thought I would draw on some of my experiences as a, as a child to present some of those distortions through the eyes of someone who is um, a precocious schoolboy with, um, with, um, with a, you know, that distorted through the lens um, view of the world as he thinks it is, but clearly. Clearly, there's a um, an exaggeration of of, uh, of what really turns out to be the case. But you know, it, it was it was a semi-autobiographical in the sense of you know most of the material lyrically was coming from my early school days. Mm -hmm. Well, the you, you, whenever I read an article about you and guitar playing, and you you just mentioned it, you you don't consider yourself a a good guitar player, but by all accounts. Uh, thick as a brick, we heard Ian Anderson as a a really good guitar player, and the 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 guitar playing on that record that's one that's when I really started to notice you as a not only a multi instrumentalist but also as someone who actually was a good guitar player, and yet you seem like you're you kind of like to skip that or, or move away from that or, or it's almost self-deprecating. You, you say that you're not a good guitar player when it yeah, sounded well, great to me. I'm a, I'm a good guitar player at playing my music because <laughs> I'm the guy who writes it so I tend to write things that I can play and then I try and expand my technique a little bit by trying to play them better or in a slightly more um, developed way. But, but 
you know, I think a good guitar player in the broad sense is going to be somebody who has uh, a mastery of the instrument that um, comes from being able to play a range of, of music that, that that player is not the, the author, the composer of. Mm-hmm. And if you ask me to play, you know, I mean, if you ask me to play Smoke on the Water, I mean, I could manage that probably, but, <laughs> you know, if you ask me to play some music by Bach, I obviously couldn't play it. And if you ask me to play some music by the Eagles, I couldn't play it. Or if you ask me to play, you know, um, one of Eric Clapton's pieces, I wouldn't be able to do justice to it in the way that he can. So no, I'm, I'm not a good guitar player. I'm a quirky, self-taught guitar player who might sound occasionally like I know what I'm doing, but um, <laughs> only in regard to the songs that I write. I, I, I'm not an all-round guitarist at all. Oh, you're very humble. The, uh... no, 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 I'm, I'm the absolute truth. I mean, I'm, I, you know, we're talking about great guitar players. There's a bunch sure. of people out there I've worked with. They, they can play almost anything you put in front of them, whether they learn it by ear or learn it by music. And, you know, I've been fortunate to work with guitar players, bass players, drummers who, who have those talents, those skills. And I'm not one of those. I mean, I'm self-taught at everything I do. I've never never had the, the time or the discipline to sit down and learn other stuff. Sure. And I, th- I think you've got to have not only open ears, but, a, you know, an open mind to uh, other people's music. And I don't. I, I'm not interested in other people's music. As soon as mm-hmm. I found that I could play and write music and sell a few records, I, I pretty much stopped listening to music full stop. I, I, you know, I have only so many hours in my day when I want to hear noise. <laughs> and <laughs> consequently, I, I tend to concentrate on doing it when I'm either practicing, rehearsing. I mean, I played for a couple of hours this morning. Um, I do most days, even if I'm not on tour. And of course, when I am on tour, then there's an hour at soundcheck and a two-hour show. So, you know, three hours of music in a day is really about as much as any sane person should be expected <laughs> to put up with. And um, the last thing I'm going to do when I get, you know, back into a a quiet space is shatter it by listening to um, rock music or pop music or indeed any kind of music because. Frankly, I'd rather put on CNN or Fox TV or Al Jazeera or the BBC <laughs> and see who's murdering who in the world. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel an obligation to spend quite a bit of my non-musical time understanding and sometimes spectacularly failing to understand who it is, who we are and what we're doing and why we're doing it. It's just... Uh, something I, I suppose comes with getting older, you become fascinated by the, by both the, uh, the hugely positive as well as the hugely negative sides of human character. Yeah. So, and that of course drives, in its own way, drives my, uh, my music even now, that it's only about watching the news, listening to things, talking to people. You know, that's always been something that's moved me um, more than just writing about my own emotions, which I relatively rarely do. Mm-hmm. But if you go back to um, even to relatively early albums, you'll find you know that I'm concerning myself with um, social, political, religious issues that are not normally the stuff of, of rock music lyrics. Well, the and how about the spiritual side? Was that the, the maybe the the thought process behind divinities, uh, the twelve dances with God. Uh, well, the thought process behind that really was that I was asked by EMI's classical music division to uh, 
to uh, do an album for them, um, mm -hmm. and I decided that I would uh, make it an orchestral sounding album, but only with a very few actual live played orchestral instruments, but, but for both the, 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 the practical working of it as well as the cost of doing it. I didn't want to go into the studio and attempt a, a complicated, difficult album with a live orchestra. I mean, I would have, it would have cost me hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to do. Mm -hmm. So uh, we only used a very few live musicians, orchestral musicians playing on the record. Mostly it was done with samplers and sequencers and the modern technology of, uh, of that era. Um, but of course it served as a function for basically a bunch of flute instrumental pieces that were just my way of looking at a number of musical um, references to different aspects of world religion. I mean, from paganism through to modern Christianity. Sure. Um, obviously, there are music that, that is, is rather more Middle Eastern and perhaps a little more Islamic in its reference, and some that's um, more Indian, more Hindu in its reference, and quite a bit that has perhaps more to do with the conventions of Christianity, which of course is the religion that I was brought up close to, rather well within, but not, not in the sense of absorbing it more than a little. But these days, of course, I'm very much a, a huge practical financial supporter of Christianity. Um, and uh, I do most years a couple of shows in uh, great medieval cathedrals to try and raise money for their maintenance and upkeep. And um, last week I played at uh, Lincoln Cathedral and St Albans Cathedral, two of our, our uh, kind of 12th century origin cathedrals that um, you know, have a huge need for public subscription. No one, no one funds it. It's, it, sure. it comes, comes from us, the people. And um, I'm still not a Christian. <laughs> but I have a huge level of uh, appreciation for Christianity, its function within society, and its and and its narrative, which is the strong point. It's the fact that it's a it's a it's a pretty good story, mm -hmm. but it's not really told in a way that has so much relevance for people today. However, you know, I'm I'm a great. I feel a very protective sense about Christianity, and uh, I feel a certain degree of, especially at this time of the year a degree of sadness that Chris, the Christian Christmas has just become, you know, just a marketing exercise, you know, get people to spend money and push the economy along by doing a lot of rather tacky things um, and um, trying to make tons of money out of it. it it's, it's, you know, we, we seem to be afraid these days in a world of political correctness to, to celebrate Christmas as the birth of Christ, the beginning of a narrative, which is the, the fundamental nature of Christianity and all of its messages, moral um, and hopeful in the spiritual sense. And, you know, I, I feel that that's a very, very important message. And even though I am not a Christian, I, I'm 100% committed to supporting Christianity, at least in my country, where it's mm -hmm. relatively benign and where it uh, hopefully can um, claw back some of the ground that it's lost in the last few decades, and uh, only by bringing people into the church, into our cathedrals, do we know that we're exposing people to the, the spiritual quest, the spiritual awareness, the, the, the thing that sends a shiver up your spine, that's sure. 
so often combined with the musical liturgy of the church. So I, I may sound like I'm talking to you from the perspective of a born-again Christian, but I assure you <laughs> I'm not. I'm, uh, I will never be a Christian because my my Jesus is a, is a historical character uh -huh. who almost certainly lived round about the time that we believe he lived, and he was a revolutionary Jewish prophet. Uh -huh. He was an angry an angry man, and he he you know he serves in the biblical stories uh, to um, to be a huge guiding light for millions of people, billions of people on planet Earth. It's a terribly important thing. But do I buy the whole story? Well, not, not really, no. So I, I, I might call myself Christian in sentiment, but as a practicing Christian, no, I, I, can't, I can't go that far. But I still feel it's a very important thing. And, and for people who, who, for whom Christianity and the celebration of it through music and being together in a place of worship, for, for whom that brings solace, togetherness, understanding, hope, faith, whatever words you want to use, I am delighted if I can be a small part of it, but, um, you know, and, and I will stand there dutifully um, while, um, you know, while the prayers are going on. Um, <laughs> but um, I'm, not, I'm not immersed in it as a practitioner. I'm immersed in it from the point of view of being a supporter and a facilitator. So, uh, yes, I'm, I'm there to do my bit for the church. Um, hell, you know, if they let me into a synagogue or a mosque, I'd do the same. Sure. But I'm not welcome there. You know, that's the reality. It, it, it doesn't work there. But uh, in fact, it's, sometimes it's hard enough for me to, to uh, persuade the, uh, the, the admin staff of our cathedrals that I'm not some imposter from hell trying to uh, <laughs> subvert the religion. And it's only when they, they get the message that, uh, well, he is actually, he's actually supported by the Archbishop of Canterbury and by, by His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales. And you know, <laughs> they, they get the message that, whoops, okay, this guy must be sort of okay. But sometimes it's tough to get them to, uh, to accept my gift to them of 100% of the ticket money. Sure. They, they, they immediately they're suspicious. There must be strings attached. Well, there aren't. I, I deliver a show. I pay for the band and the crew and the sound and the lights and the hotels and the travel. And they get a hundred percent of the ticket money gross. Wow. It doesn't. It doesn't come near me. And that is a pure gift. Um, I mean, it's a gift that might be worth, I don't know, forty, forty-five thousand dollars per per show that I do. And and that in reality is probably between one and four days worth of the cost of running a cathedral, depending on which cathedral we're talking about. So it's a tiny drop in the ocean. But it's to me more about, it's not just the money, it's the people that you bring through the door, many of whom are not regular churchgoers and who I know, I mean, I can see it in their faces. They're, they're, they are in a place where they, many of them are beyond their comfort zone in the sense of, the, of where they are and the strange atmosphere of it. But something about that, the music, the, the mixture of seriousness and lightheartedness, the mixture of... of um, uh, of the, uh, the the traditional celebration of Christianity through blessing, prayer, readings, and the the secular presentation of musical entertainment, that that careful balance is something that I know does reach out to people, and I'm quite sure that most of them leave the building with some little feeling of you know having experience something that they didn't experience you know on the way to the to the venue yeah. or um 
or perhaps in the rest of their day or their week or their year. So, um, you know, in that sense, I, I think it's quite an important thing for me to do, making up as it does only a tiny fraction of what I do in the year. But sure, no, but I'm very but, happy to do. And so, church music, you know, it's the first music that I heard as a child. It was you know, going to school in Scotland. It was church music. It was then maybe a little bit of Scottish folk music, and then when I was eight or ten years old it was um it was big band jazz but um you know my my musical awareness is quite eclectic in itself but i i, I would guess the first thing i heard but didn't really enjoy was church music the hmm. first music i enjoyed was big band jazz but you know i i was certainly exposed to music as a child uh, you know from the age of six years old onwards wow well you're right i mean it's hard for regardless of someone's religion to walk into a church or mosque or a temple and not at least begin to think about things. Well, I, I, I believe that's the case. And if you go to, you know, certain cities of the world and experience, you know, the heart of culture as it is embraced within, say, Islam, then, you, you know, you're moved by that as well. At least mm -hmm. you should be. I should Donald sure. Trump. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you, sh you should be feeling some positive feelings out of the, the Absolutely. people gather together to worship. And, and of course, um, you know, music's not a part of Islam. It's, um, it's Christianity that really has the biggest musical liturgy. Um, and of course, the great works of improvisers like J.S. Bach are, are hugely important in the, the canon of, uh, of great church and cathedral music. It's, it's, um, we often forget that Bach, rather like Mozart and Beethoven, were, these were jazzers. I mean, mm -hmm. these guys had enormous technical skills, enormous conventional compositional skills, but they could sit down and jam. You know, mm -hmm. they could sit down, all of them could sit down and improvise endlessly on a theme. And, and so, you know, so history, I think, reliably tells us. And um, improvisation as it is in jazz, it's just, um, it's just like, I mean, composition, if you're writing a symphony, you're just improvising, but very, very slowly. <laughs> and, um, you know, in that sense, you know, that, that's what we love about improvisation. It's so spontaneous and so natural. But of course it isn't. If you listen to Charlie Parker's endless outtakes on record, you realize he's coming at that solo from the same place every time. And he's got the same kind of notions he wants to include in that solo. Maybe somewhere he flies, does something he didn't think about doing. But, but you know, improvisation is obviously rather... Um, suspect in the sense that a lot of the time, you know, it's still more structured than perhaps the casual listener appreciates. Mm -hmm. and, uh, many great solos, as they are in rock music, are uh, they might have been improv in the studio, the one and only time that they were played, but then they become set in stone as, as if they're musical compositions. And I can remember recording, recording the song Aqualung and Martin Barr was playing the guitar solo in the studios and overdub and Jimmy Page walked into the control room and was watching Martin playing this solo and kind of cheering him on and and that was it that was the that was the take you know that was the that was the one and only and and you think well would it if Jimmy Page hadn't been there if he hadn't if Martin hadn't seen him through the window of the control room you know would he have played that note sure. <laughs> would he have played that phrase you, you, you could never know so yes, in the sense that these improvisational moments are important, yes indeed they are, but then of course when you go out to play that music live on stage, you, you are kind of called upon to play that, if not note for note, certainly the structure of the solo, you probably begin to feel quite soon, I, 
I think I better stick with that idea because <laughs> that's that's what that's what the fans have come to know. Yeah. I mean, I I, I played a few weeks ago. I played on the Jack Bruce, uh, Jack Bruce, the bass player from sure, Cream, he's best known. I played on a tribute con in a tribute concert in London, and uh, and uh, the, the the culminating final song was uh, was um, uh, Sunshine of Your Love, and there were assembled on the stage, I think something like 11 guitarists, I mean a ridiculous number of guitar players, and about seven of them were invited to play a solo. So there was this endless you know, parading of guitar solos um, at the end of two-thirds of the way through the piece. And, <laughs> um, and I had been asked, and I tried to decline politely to play a flute solo, I said, there ain't no flute on Sunshine of Your Love, and <laughs> but they, they wanted me to play along with it, and I, I had in fact played it with Jack Bruce on a, on a German television show live once, so I kind of had a, I knew what I would play. But I uh, came to the solo, and they, they wanted me to take, you know, a sequence, uh, you know, as a flute solo, and um, I tried to get out of it, but they really wanted me to do it, so... I studiously avoided playing anything like Eric Clapton's guitar solo because I thought well, at least one of the guitar players is going to play that quote from Blue Moon. Sure. And we went through rehearsal and none of them did. So <laughs> the night before the show I thought, well, hell, if those guys are all steering clear of Eric Clapton's Blue Moon quotes, then I'll do it on the flute. That kind of is more fun in a way because it's a different instrument. and maybe a little bit more acceptable that I, I play that, that line. And so I base my flute solo kind of on Eric Clapton's guitar solo. Of course, everybody else during the few hours before the concert had the same idea. So we, we, we were treated to several different versions of, of Blue Moon during the, during the um, and least a few of them started it but didn't persevere because they didn't know it well enough. But um, it was quite, quite funny that at least a couple of the guitar players had, had the same thought as me. Oh, nobody well, I, else is doing it, so maybe I will. <laughs> well, I, I guess you could argue you can't get too much of that. You very easily could, but um, <laughs> it was a, it was one of those moments where you you're forced to think about what improvisation is. You know that it's a, it may be an off the cuff moment the first time you do it, but it becomes embedded in people's mind. And um, in a way, I think I think that's what we as performers have to remember that if we 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 create a monster in terms of a an improv moment, that then we have to kind of do it that way forevermore. But rather than feel that it's a, a tiresome obligation. You should rejoice in that moment. You have created a piece of compositional music in as long as it took to play it. It's something to feel really, really good about if, if, uh, if people want to hear it that way. Well, the, I guess, last and certainly not least, you have a new tour, the new Jethro Tull concert tour. I, you're gonna be in a bunch of places here in the US. Um, and it really, from my understanding, it's going to take, take people through a journey from the very, very beginning up until, you know, current to current. And well, it's uh, a, it, it, it is a narrative, but it's not a narrative in the chronological sense of the, the material. It's a sort of a best of Jethro Tull tour, classic mm -hmm. Jethro Tull repertoire, but it's used to illustrate the, the chronological story of a reimagined Jethro Tull agricultural inventor, where instead of making it a period piece from the from the uh, the 18th or 17th and 18th centuries, um, I decided to set that story, his story, his life story, in the present day and near future. So I'm reimagining Jethro Tull as if he was alive today and embarking upon 
uh, works of agricultural innovation and technology, um, which of course allows me to you know, play with ideas of climate change and population growth and feeding a, a very hungry planet. Uh, the ethical issues, the, uh, the scientific issues, the, the personal issues of m managing that kind of world whilst at the same time you, you, know, you have a, a wife and a son and a family. And, mm -hmm. you know, so I'm, I'm sort of using the songs to illustrate his personal and professional life but as if it was taking place today. So in that sense, it's a narrative, but the songs are chosen generally from uh, mostly music of the 70s um, and uh, plus five short new songs that were written really to flesh out the story in the sense of contemporary agricultural technology and biochemistry. Um, not done in a deeply scientific way. They're, they're, these are toe tappers. These are these are sure. simple, direct songs that I mean have to be entertaining to the public. They don't want to know the the detail of the of the uh, of the of the of the story or even lyrically. They just like words that sound good and they like it to be presented in a way that's fun. But for those people who want to look into it in more detail, well, yes, there is some substance to it, but it doesn't depend on the detail to entertain you. It's it's got to be entertaining first and last time you hear it, because uh, with new material, you know, it's, it's got to be instantaneous. It can't, sure. it can't be a, a, a down sort of sort of drab spot in a show. <laughs> People haven't heard it before. Well, I'm, I'm, told the, that, I'm told that even the classics, you uh, revise some of the lyrics to kind of bring them current. Um, in a few cases, yes. Most of it's relatively untouched, but there are, when you have characters singing... Uh, in in character, you know their parts, singing a line of lyrics here and there. They, they, they you know, a, a he becomes an I, you know, um, they becomes a we, you know. So there's a lot of changes of pronoun, and um, in a few cases, I rewrote a verse, you know, or changed lyrics a little bit, um, you know. And in one uh, one case that comes to mind, I, I wrote a whole new verse in the song Heavy Horses because uh -huh. I didn't just really want to talk about the historical nature of shy horses pull, pulling the plow. I'm talking about the, you know, the 300 horses under the hood of a modern uh, general purpose agricultural tractor, you know, with its four-wheel drive and its uh, air suspension and fingertip steering. And I'm talking about <laughs> technology. I'm talking about today's yeah. agriculture. You know? Sure. So yes, I, I had to write a new verse that would talk about heavy horses in the contemporary sense of horsepower. And uh, although I noticed some interest, I referred to three hundred horses under the foot under the hood. My wife's new postmenopausal Mercedes actually has three hundred and eighty-seven horses <laughs> under the hood, being an AMG um, um, GLA class Mercedes, which looks <laughs> an, an innocuous little family car, but in fact it's a it's a, it's essentially you know, Formula One race car technology on, uh, yeah. you know, in uh, in the guise of something that looks rather like a pussycat. <laughs> well, I hope to catch one of your shows. Maybe I'll come up to Atlanta. I hear that's that's going to happen sometime in April. Ian, I really appreciate your time. It was so wonderful to talk to you. Um, you know, your music certainly has stood the test of time, and we look forward to not only hearing this great Jethro Tull tour, but so much more from you. And again, thank you. Well, it's a great pleasure. Uh, you wish me luck on uh, on uh, 
the 1st of January at 9 a.m., because that's the day that I have to go in and start work on a new project. So that's when I will test my own powers of inventiveness, because I have absolutely no idea what I'm going to be doing at 9 o'clock. And that's kind of the, the moment when you put yourself to the test and go in with a blank canvas and an empty head and see what happens. Wishing you all the luck in the world, though you're not going to need it. And that wraps up another episode of Jazz Is Not What You Think. Be sure to log on to jazziz.com, like us, subscribe to, and share our podcast with friends, and even write a review. Thanks for joining us. So long for now.